Okay, did you know that God sings? Listen to Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. I love this part. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Isn't that a wonderful picture of a loving God? He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Our God sings. Did you know that he has a majestic voice? Listen to Isaiah 30. And you will sing as on the night you celebrate a holy festival. Your hearts will rejoice as when people go out with flutes to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. The Lord will cause men to hear his majestic voice. So our God sings with a majestic voice. But you know, did you know that he also writes songs? Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 31. Now write down for yourselves. This is God speaking to, Mo, to uh, Moses. This song and teach it to the Israelites. Now this is God speaking. Write down this song. The idea, the implication, the song that I am giving to you. Write down this song and teach it to the Israelites and have them sing it so that it may be a witness for me against them. When I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, the land I promised on oath to their forefathers, and when they eat their fill and thrive, they will turn to other gods and worship them, rejecting me and breaking my covenant. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song... I want you to remember these words in the context of Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 about the word of God dwelling in us richly and teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and so on. This is the context here. Well, that's where I want you to put it. And when many disasters and difficulties come upon them, this song will testify against them because it will not be forgotten by their descendants. So you see... Spiritual songs, as we mentioned this morning, spirit-filled songs. This is a song that is written by God, is meant to teach us lessons from one generation to another. By the way, this is one of the reasons that many people in the musical world debate concerning choruses. They say in years to come, very few people are going to remember the choruses, the short ones. So now, Anton, I'm not sure you have even aware of this yet, but there's a movement now to make the choruses longer. Which means that you're actually going back to the idea of hymns or songs. Because the truth, the message, is not coming across the way it should. And there's a principle here. These spirit-directed songs, then, in the context of our message this morning, is designed to carry, to communicate truth from one generation to another. It will be forgotten by the descendants. I know what they are disposed to do. Even before I bring them into the land, I promised on an oath. So Moses wrote down this song that day and taught it to the Israelites. God gave him the words. God is a songwriter. 
he has a majestic voice and he sings. Now, this song here is a long song. You read it in, uh, in Deuteronomy. It goes right through into chapter 32, verse 47. It's called the song of Moses, but really that's a misnomer. It's a song of God given to Moses. God composed it. Moses write it down, wrote it down, and Moses taught it to the people. Let me read you a portion of that song just to show you the importance of the words in the song. Deuteronomy 32, Then Moses went with Joshua, son of Nun, and recited all the words of this song to the people. When Moses finished reciting all these words to all Israel, he said to them, Keep in mind all the words I am solemnly proclaiming to you today. How? Through the song. You must command your children to observe carefully all the words of this law. Given how? Through the song composed by God. For this is no idle word for you. The song that God gave to the people of Israel to recite, to memorize, and to pass on from one generation to another does not contain idle words. It is your life. See, that's why it's so important for us to sing the words of God. I was so delighted tonight. We're singing the word of God. The word of God. By this word you will live a long time in the land you are about to cross to Jordan in order to possess. In other words, in the context of this morning's message, spirit-filled words for songs are not idle words to be sung or played without due concern for their seriousness. They are words that should be obeyed. Are you getting the message here? We're talking now about music that promotes spiritual maturity in the church. And we're focusing on the importance of the words, in the hymns and the music that we sing. Our God then is a singing God with a majestic voice who writes songs to teach his people. And he continues this activity through his word to his people today. It's important for us to see this. Now, the conclusion from this morning's message may be stated as follows. Spirit-filled music is designed by God to mature believers by proclaiming the word of God and to glorify him because it is a spiritual sacrifice offered to him in the name of Christ with an attitude of joy and thanksgiving. We're taking into that definition of spirit-filled music all of the concepts we glean from Ephesians 5, Colossians chapter 3. But, this is true, but according to our text, the key to achieving this kind of a setting when we gather together appears to be for believers to sing to one another not only to be sung to without the opportunity to sing back in response that's what we did this evening did you see it and wasn't there a difference sure it was 
I sat there and I listened to see how you sang back to one another. You became involved. It was not just you being an audience listening to an entertainer or a performer up there. But you are participants. You became involved. And that's how we communicate the word of God to one another when we gather together. And that's the context. Ephesians 3, Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 says that we promote spiritual maturity in our lives. Now, if this is so, we have some questions then we need to ask. Exactly how is this to be done within the context of a worship service? How do we sing to one another? I think we had a demonstration tonight how it can be done. But the point is, do we do it often enough? You see, I believe we have come to a point now we've taken on the Hollywood concept. Everything, up, everything happens up here. Everything rather than the congregation being involved. And Ephesians and Colossians definitely puts this kind of an event within the context of responsive or antiphonal kind of response. And so I'm saying here we need to do it more often if we are going to be true to Scripture. Remember I asked you this morning, how many of us have really examined what we do as a local church in the light of the Word of God? Have we simply grabbed on to what has always been happening and accepted it as being biblical? I'm saying to you, the more I study the scripture, the more I see us being at variance with some of the things God tells us to do. And this is one of them. So exactly how is this to be done within the context of a worship service? We are going to be exploring this area more and more, and we're going to be talking about it in a moment, and we want your feedback as well. But secondly... Have we missed the boat by employing, or rather by not employing this style of music, this responsive and tiffinal type of a situation? Have we really missed a major element for church growth in ministering to one another? I want you to be thinking about that. In fact, let me ask you right now, what do you think about that? What questions or response or comments do you have related to the message I gave this morning and what we've just said. Any questions or comments about this at all? Spirit-filled music. See, now this is another way for spiritual growth. Darren? I would say I completely agree with it. It's something we should do more often, especially if it's in Scripture. Good. Thank you. You see, this is important. Why? Because music takes up such a large part of our activity as a church. Isn't that right? But how many of us evaluate what we're doing? It's just amazing to me. Well, let me ask another question, a third question, and that is, how do we evaluate spirit-filled music? Or how do we evaluate music to see whether or not it's spirit-filled? Well, let me give you a couple of suggestions. First of all, you, can, you must test the spirits. If we are going to evaluate music to determine its spirituality, in other, in other words, to see if it comes from God. It begins with testing the spirits. Listen to Paul, or rather John, in 1 John 4. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to determine if they are from God. 
because many false prophets have gone out into the world. You see, right away, we look at preachers, teachers, and pastors to apply this to. But those who sing are doing the same thing preachers and teachers do. Only thing, they do it in a melodious way. Through music. They're communicating something nonetheless. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus as the Christ who has come in the flesh is from God. Now, we showed you this morning where they sing that song, He emptied himself of all but love. You see, if we follow that and take those words exactly, we could come to the conclusion that Jesus gave up his deity. But did he? Of course not. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and is now already in the world. In other words, if we pick up a piece of music and we see that it anyway diminishes the deity of Christ, no matter how popular that song is, it has the spirit of Antichrist. And that's powerful words, but that's true. If it is any way it take, takes away from the deity of the Christ or the humanity of Christ, According to this passage, it's of the spirit of the Antichrist. Now that's harsh words, isn't it? And that's that lovely song. But that's what the scripture teaches. And so this passage must be applied to songs, to music, and singing by musicians and singers, as it is to sermons, to preaching and teaching from the pulpit. Remember how we paraphrase that passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Let me do it again this morning in order to carry this truth home. For the time will come, and I'm substituting words here as you know, the time will come when men will not put up with sound music. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of singers to sing what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to music with beat, with no truth. And that is happening today. We could get thousands and millions of people listening to a person with a fantastic voice who's teaching error through their music and through their songs. So I'm saying here, from a biblical perspective, I see that we need to test the music, we need to test the songs and those who play and sing them to see whether or not they have their source in the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. Not only preachers, but singers and musicians. But now how do we evaluate spirit-filled music or music to see whether or not it is spirit-filled? Well, first you test the message. We saw the importance of that this morning in Colossians. We're letting the word of God dwell in you richly. We see the importance of it in Deuteronomy where God himself talks about the seriousness of the words. We must test the message. You see, spirit-filled songs will be true to the word of God. You cannot have a spirit-filled song that is contrary to the word of God. You cannot have it. Here's what Psalm 138 says. I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name for your love and your faithfulness. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. Now, unfortunately, the King James Version has caused a little distortion about this saying that the word of God is above the name of God. But that's not what it says. Actually, the passage says they're on the, true, on the same level. 
And the passage should read this way. For you have exalted above all things your name and your word. In other words, God's word and name are on equal footing. We have to treat them in the same fashion. He is glorified through the accurate communication of his word. The text of spiritual songs communicates divine truth. That's the point. It communicates divine truth. Here's what John says, or Jesus in John 4.23. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers Genuine, authentic worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and what? Truth. And so if we have a song, if we have music that is not portraying divine truth, we are not genuine worshipers. Because we must worship him in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. That's why we must be careful to what we sing when we come to worship or when we worship anywhere else. Secondly, does it reflect biblical doctrine and godly living? The song that we are singing, the music that we're playing, does it reflect biblical teaching and godly living? Songs that promote unexamined, undisciplined, self-centered, and self-gratifying concepts cannot be spirit-filled. Cannot. Why? Because it's contrary to the Word of God. Another thing we must ask, is it intellectually enlightening? Now, some people don't like that. Intellectual. What do you mean intellectual? Are you talking about something too hard to understand? No. I'm talking about something that makes sense. So, something that makes sense. You see? This is what Paul said. So, what shall I do? Speaking about tongues and languages and also, what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit. In the context, it means in uh, praying with the spirit in different languages. But I will also pray with my mind. He's trying to show you, hey, yes, I could pray in another language. That's fine. But that's not all that is good or necessary or important for the building up of the body. I must also pray with my mind. In other words, intelligently so people can understand what I'm saying. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. I will sing in an intelligent way. I will sing in a way that is understood, is what he's saying. And in the context, he means what is being understood is what he's getting from God. Are the words true to the scripture in the song that you're singing or playing? Are they biblically accurate? And unambiguous. We looked at that this morning as well to show you that some songs are ambiguous. The fact that the past of the song that we looked at, we said that Jesus uh, came to die for his own. And that's a beautiful truth. But for theologians, it's a little ambiguous because it could be implied, implying limited atonement. He didn't die for everyone. He only died for the elect. That's one side of doctrine. It's ambiguous. You see, does it promote God's glory? 
Does it promote God's glory? So you test the message. That's important, the words. Secondly, you test the music. Now this is the part where we might come into a little bit more of a discussion or debate. Does the music stifle the message? I, I listened, uh, 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 Terence and I went to a place in, in, in uh, Seattle and we had a guy there who was, uh, what do you call him, hip-hop? Hip-hop. And you know when these guys come up, they sing fast. And the music, you know, you got to really how good is. Well, this guy sang, but this time they showed the music. I'm sorry, they showed the lyrics, the words. And listen, those words were right on. But you know something? I wouldn't have understood what he was saying if he had the words up. Now, I'm sure the young people, they might. But I sure couldn't. And so the message, you see, was being clouded hidden by the music. And what we're saying is here, if we're going to stay biblically, it's the message that's important, not the tunes. Not that it isn't something we should be careful about, but if it hides the message, if it covers the message, then the music is wrong. You understand what I'm saying? That's the important thing here. Does it overpower the message? Or is the music the message? And unfortunately, I believe that's where a lot of young people are today. The music is the message, you see. And we cannot allow that to happen if we are going to be built up, edified in our singing as the people of God. Now, this has to do with the proper combining of the elements of music. Melody, harmony, rhythm, and all of that. And I did some research on that. And Don and, Don and uh, Anton, help us out on this, please. And I want your response here. They're going to play a tune, and I want you to sing it. Just one stanza and the chorus or whatever it is. Hymn number 390 in Living It I was going to say Living It Up. No, Living Hymns. Hymn number 390. I just want to show you how some people discuss this and then we'll do it. Ready? Anton? You could sing. the argument by some songwriters concerning this particular tune. They say they, you have a really tragic human situation of us being lost in sin. But then it's been sung in a joyful manner. 
They're saying that the tone doesn't go along with the message. See the point? In other words, the argument is the tone should be true to... It's just like, it's just like for instance, a preacher. I'm going to preach about hell today. And I start with all kinds of jokes. You know? And I'm only being jovial. And I'm talking about hell. See, my attitude doesn't fit the message. That's what some. Now, others would say, well, no. We're singing that we're joyfully because we're being lifted out of it. You see? We're being lifted out of it. They said there has to be a fine balance here. They're just trying to make a point here that the music should support the message rather than distract. All right? That's one. Now, that might not be a big one, but that's one. Here's another one. Number 129. Remember, what we're trying to show here is how do we, uh, how are we to be certain as much as possible, positive as much as possible, that the message is not in any way being diluted, either through the words or through the, mu or the, 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 the tunes or the lyrics and so on. 129. here is the argument of some theologians with that and music. You have the beginning, a very sad situation with Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And then you jump right into the chorus that's very jumpy, that is very bright type of a situation. And they said, again, there's, you're hiding the true message. But again, the other side of the argument, well, we want to focus on the joy rather than the sorrow of Christ. Now, I understand with this one, was this the one who was, alas, and did my Savior bleed? It's the same type of a thing where another person uh, wrote the, the uh, was not the, the chorus, eh? The chorus. Another person wrote the chorus. And so you have the same thing. You have, alas, did my Savior bleed, and so on. Very sorrowful, very sad. Then you have a very lively, jumpy chorus. And the idea is the person who added this chorus to the song just lost the whole message because of bringing this in. What, what is the point? The point is this. The message in our songs is the important thing. And we must, do not, we must do nothing that will in any way dilute that message. Paul says that the message of the gospel should not be diluted through all kinds of frivolous words and so on. It's the same thing with music. We shouldn't dilute the message because of a tune and so on. All right. Um, another question we could ask, does it titillate the emotions rather than stimulate the mind and the will? Here's an illustration from Ezekiel. As for you, son of man, your countrymen are talking together about you by the walls and the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you 
as they usually do, and sit before you to listen to your words. But they do not put them into practice. With their mouths they express devotion, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. All they want to hear is tunes. The message doesn't mean a thing. Unfortunately, that is true in many churches. What I'm saying, we have to be careful with that. We just cannot focus on the beautiful music. Then you need to test the messenger. Is he or she or they ministering or performing? I put, I put it in quotes, performing. I put performing in quotes because in a very real sense, whenever anyone sings, they are performing. But there is a good way to perform and there is a bad way to perform. The, the bad way to perform is when you're performing to get praise and honor for yourself. The good way is when you're doing it in order to praise and glorify the Lord. Is it an ego trip? Or is it a humble expression of God-given ability? Look at the messenger, the person who is singing. Look at them. Why are, what are they getting out of it? What are they putting into it? Is the motive blessing or money? I remember talking to a fellow one time, a person who was coming down about singing, and they wouldn't come unless they could sell their albums. Right away, say, fine, don't come. Now, I'd be very glad to sell albums, but if that's going to condition for ministering to the people of God, then I have a different opinion. You understand what I'm saying? And you see, we do these things casually in a, in a, in a nonchalant manner without even thinking about them. Are they doing it for God's glory or personal profit? Is he, she, or they spiritually qualified to minister spiritually? How many times do you ask that about a person who sings? If they're spiritually qualified to be ministering to the people of God. Or you're doing it, why? They've got a beautiful voice. Or it's their turn. See, all those kinds of things nullify spiritual growth and the blessings of God. What is their personal life or their character like? You know, we demand spiritual maturity for preachers. Should we not demand the same for singers, for instrumentalists as well? Because they're communicating the truth as well. But we don't see it in that way. But now let me show you, God lays it on the line for us. And I'll close in just a few seconds. Notice what he says in Amos. I hate, these are some strong words now. I despise your religious feasts. We could put in here, I despise your Christmas gatherings, your Easter and your Good Friday gatherings and your worship services. Why? I cannot stand your assemblies. I cannot stand your gathering together. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, I, I'm sorry, grain offerings, I will not accept them. They're bringing everything. They're coming out to church. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will not 
I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. You hear what he calls it? We call it a good time, beautiful singing. But God calls it noise. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like an ever-failing stream. In the context, God says, because you come and your heart is far from me. Therefore, no, no matter how beautiful your singing is, no, how, no how wonderful your praise team is, no matter what your offering is, it's no good because you're not spiritually qualified to present it. So let's go back now to what he really wants in our local assembly, Ephesians 4. For this reason, do not be foolish, but be wise by understanding what the Lord's will is. And do not get drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody, making music in your hearts to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for each other in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what he's looking for. Then Colossians chapter 3. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. How? As you teach and admonish one another. How? With all wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's what he wants. Not us getting up there just doing it for our own glory. Doing it for our own benefit and without any kind of spiritual maturity or, or, or the kind of character that he wants. This is what he wants. This is the kind of music. This is the kind of singing that fosters spiritual growth. And that's what the God we have who sings. The God who has a majestic voice. And a God who writes songs for us to sing. That's how he wants us to sing and to praise him. As always, Sila, think and act on these things.